Blog Talk Radio. And so is the messenger. People in Center City, Philadelphia, have been stopped in their tracks at the side of a man hoping to put an end to black-on-black crime. He thinks that the problem is ignored, so he's using a symbol of hate to grab your attention. Tonight in CBS3 Exclusive, our Jerika Duncan talks to the man under the hood. In 2013, no one expects to see this. A man dressed in a Ku Klux Klan robe mid-morning in Center City, Philadelphia. He needs to be arrested and committed into the jail system. This man is not out to lynch or kill black people. In fact, he is black. Six King says he's using an offensive symbol to highlight a serious problem, black-on-black crime. We're bringing awareness to the black hypocrisy, complacency, and apathy in the African-American community. Nationally, more than 7,000 blacks were murdered in 2011. King Sign reads the KKK killed 3,446 blacks in 86 years. Black-on-black murders surpassed that number every six months. 
all my anger for my ancestors that went through that terror of a Ku Klux Klan hood and what it symbolizes to me invoked anger. I was angry. Philadelphia Councilman Curtis Jones Jr. took a picture of what he witnessed and posted it on Facebook. Hundreds shared the image. The comments were mixed. You have to sit back and digest his message. Sit back and understand the mother that was carrying a picture of her child. It's not a statistic. It's a human being with a name that will be missed. He's an exceptional football athlete. He was a second year in college. He was a good kid. Javez Phelps Washington rallied with King. Her son Christopher was among the 324 people murdered in Philadelphia in 2011. Police say the majority of blacks who were killed were murdered by other blacks. Washington is part of a documentary King recently produced about black-on-black crime. In an interview without the Klan robe, King told me he did not intend to offend anyone. Do you really think standing on the corner with a Ku Klux Klan costume will stop someone from killing someone? I don't think it will stop someone from, from, from killing, but hopefully it would make that person think. I don't agree with that symbolization, but you can't ignore the message. I support what he did. Go to cbsphilly.com, click on my story for a link to organizations that are actively seeking solutions. Reporting in the News Center, Jerika Duncan, CBS3 Eyewitness News. Welcome, folks, to the Dr. C. Robert Jones situation report with me, your host, Dr. C. Robert Jones. What do you think about that? Well, before we get into that, let's get into this. Today's date is, wow, and we've already had daylight savings time, by the way, March 11th, 2015, United States of America, planet Earth, third planet from the sun. And you're here with me tonight for this glorious hour of broadcasting on blogtalkradio.com, Spreaker, 365 Live, and... um couple other places you can find the show email me if you have any uh if you have any uh problems finding me i'll i'll direct you right to the show so um what do you think about that a black man standing on a crowded street corner in the streets of philadelphia wearing full kkk regalia he even has the patch of the Grand Imperial Wizard. He's gone full out with his uh, KKK ensemble, but he, he's trying to make a point. And, of course, that point is blacks kill blacks daily. And we don't, we hear about it on the news, but it's become so common that uh, oh, that's a shame. Oh, that's so sad. Look at that mother screaming for her baby. And they put, um, you know, you see the the wooden crosses and the um, the stuffed animals and all that little shrine, and that's it. It's over. It's done. Al Sharpton's not marching. Mm-mm. No. Jesse Jackson, nowhere to be found. So, it's pretty much swept under the rug. It's over, it's done. Because, let's face it, let's let's deal with facts tonight. Black-on-black crime is an event that occurs every single day in cities across the United States of America. It is so common that very few raise an eyebrow when a black man is gunned down. Every so often, a young hood whose life is pretty much wasted by the time he is 16 years old. He's been in the system so many times, he's on a fast track to prison time. But every once in a while, this young hood, whose life is fairly over from birth, 
sad to say. Guns down a promising young black man, promising young black child who goes to school, lives in poverty, the same as the young hood, a lot of times in the same neighborhood, down the block. Except this young one goes to school every day, carries his books in his backpack. He studies, he learns, he wants to be a doctor, a lawyer. He wants to be a scientist. Maybe he he wants to be an athlete like Michael Jordan or a boxer like Muhammad Ali or whatever. He he wants to be somebody. And he is gunned down because he wouldn't give up his backpack or he wouldn't give up his sneakers or his jacket. The young hood calls him the N-word, demands these goods. The young man in his naivete refuses and is gunned down. Only then is there public outrage. And usually it's quite local and doesn't get national attention unless, yes, Fox News, fair and balanced, throws it out there. Only then will we see the outrage. So, what do you think of a black man saying, I've had enough. Somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to talk about this. Somebody needs to get the message out, the word. Spread the word. Somebody's got to do it. What do you think? Is he gone, has he gone too far? Is he out of line? Should he have chosen a different method? Now, to be fair, black on black crime. In 86 years, 86 years, the KKK killed over 3,000 innocent black men, women, and children. During the Black Wall Street riots in 1926 alone, about 86% of white people killed white people. But we have a disproportionate number of black people killing black people, but and, – and, and we know this already. We know it's a fact. The statistics bear it out. If I'm walking down a street and there is a white guy following me and he's wearing a hoodie, I'll be honest with you. It's all good. I believe he's just on his way. Maybe his head's cold. Maybe I'm the one who's naive. But if there's a black man walking behind me, he's wearing a hoodie and he's got the hood over his head and his hands in his pocket, I'm immediately on guard. What about you? Is there a reason for it? Well, if you think there is, let's take a look at the statistics. I'm going to go ahead and play a very brief video for you, audio rather, of the statistics. It's called race and crime. Tell me what you, you know, go ahead. I mean, because this is, for, honestly, it's going, to be, it's going to be shocking to you right here and now. Because it's going to throw some statistics out there that are really going to sound super racist. But we, on the C. Robert Jones Situation Report, we're not afraid of that sort of thing. Because just like Bill O'Reilly, we've got a no-spin zone here. So take a listen. Statistics on arrests for violent crimes throughout the world reflect an underlying reality. On average, males act more aggressively than females. 
and people of sub-Saharan African descent act more aggressively than people from other ancestral lineages. According to international crime databases, in terms of violent crimes per 100,000 people, the rate is 35 for Asian countries, 42 for European countries, and 149 for African countries. Poor blacks commit crimes at much higher rates than poor Asians and poor Europeans. The proportion of an area that is black is a better predictor of its violent crime rate than the proportion of that area that is impoverished. In the United States, black males between 16 and 36 are about 3% of the population. Nevertheless, they are responsible for 33% of all crimes. In many major crime categories, blacks are more overrepresented as perpetrators relative to whites than males are relative to females. In some major cities, 40% of all black males have criminal records. Black criminals are more likely to attack whites than white criminals are to attack blacks. White criminals choose black victims in only 3% of their crimes, but black criminals choose white victims in 45% of their crimes. Blacks are animals. Whites are animals. We are all animals that are as much defined by our genetics as any other species. Blacks have higher testosterone levels than whites, which are correlated with higher levels of aggression. In every multiracial country on Earth, from South Africa to Great Britain to Brazil to the United States, blacks commit a disproportionately large share of the violent crimes. Exceptions to the rule of higher rates of black crime can be theorized or even prescribed to exist, but none are empirically observable. What is observable is the reality of race and crime. All right, so we're back. What do you think about that? It, it On the surface of it, it sounds like... Uh, it sounds kind of racist. I'll be honest with you. It does. But sometimes, my friends, the truth is not always pretty. Would you agree? It's not always pretty. So we're going to have to go with the truth here. Is it true that – I mean, do you, does anyone remember Jimmy the Greek? Jimmy the Greek was a prognosticator, sports prognosticator from the 70s, and he was a sports betting guy, and um, he was so good at, at his chosen profession that he was offered a spot on CBS's uh, wide, wide world of sports. Anyone remember that? No? <laughs> oh boy I am 53 years old so anyway so Jimmy had one one night uh, Jimmy had had a little bit too much to drink and a news cameraman interviewed him and he started running off and he started talking about how blacks were natural athletes and how they could run faster than whites. They could jump higher. They could physically outperform your standard average American white guy. This is what he said. I don't necessarily believe that's true. But this is what Jimmy the Greek said. But he went further and he said that blacks were bred that way. They were bred to be stronger, faster, more agile. And that's what got him into trouble. Well, a few days later, Jimmy the Greek was banned from television, received hate mail, and all of that. Was he spouting off because he'd had a little bit too much to drink, or was he telling the truth? I don't know. But some of you are probably asking yourselves, 
Well, what has this got to do with the topic of the evening? Well, it's about truth. It's about being honest with what's going on. In the summer of 2013, after neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman, a Hispanic, was acquitted in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, the political left wanted to have a discussion about everything except the black crime rate, the black crime rate that led people to view young black males with suspicion. President Obama and Attorney General Eric Holder wanted to talk about gun control. The NAACP wanted to talk about racial profiling. Assorted academics and MSNBC talking heads wanted to discuss poverty, stand your ground laws, unemployment, and the supposedly racial, racist criminal justice system. But any candid debate on race and criminality in the United States must begin with the fact that blacks are responsible for an outstandingly disproportionate number of crimes, which has been the case for at least the past half century. Now, some blame it on poverty. Some blame it on our educational system, liberals mostly. They blame it on institutional racism. But as I've stated many times, folks, there are two people whom I have something in common with who were rose to fame in the 80s and 90s, who were actors, comedians, personalities. Two of those individuals... One named Bernie McCullough. Some of you know him as Bernie Mac. And the other was Lawrence T. Rowe. Is Lawrence T. Rowe. He's still here. Otherwise known as Mr. T. And then there's yours truly. Now, what do the three of us have in common? We all grew up in poverty in the Robert Taylor homes of 4120 South Indiana. That same building. Now I'm I'm I am nowhere near where these guys are. Never will be. Never have been. <laughs> I was just a marine. That's it. But with all the crime that went on, all the drug dealing, all the violence, all the gang banging that went on in the seventies and early eighties, while while we were growing up. In the Robert Taylor homes, I left in 79 to join the Corps. But during the 70s, well, me and Bernie and Mr. T, whom I, 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 must, I must tell you, I did not know them. We didn't hang. I never saw them in the building. I never knew they were in the building. I never knew they lived that we lived in the same building until they became famous and spoke about living in 4120 South Indiana. I lived in apartment 602 on the sixth floor. I don't know which apartments they lived in. But after that, of course, I had to throw it out there that I lived in the same building with with Bernie Mac and Mr. T. But on with the show. I decided to become a Marine. Bernie, a comedian and an actor. Mr. T, a bouncer at a little little hot spot downtown Chicago called Dingbats, where he was discovered after winning a bouncer contest by Sylvester Stallone. Next thing you know, he's in the Rocky movie. He's famous. He's doing uh, the A-Team and all sorts of other stuff, which is all great. But why didn't the three of us become gangbangers? We were all poor. We lived in the same poor Robert Taylor we call the projects. We all lived that way. All three of us. Why didn't we become gangbangers and thugs and hoodlums? Why? If we're 
if if we're prone to violence, if it's about the lack of education, if it's about the lack of jobs, if it's about being poor, how did Bernie Mac escape that? How did Mr. T escape that? Could it be? Could it be that Bernie wanted something more? That he wanted something more? Could it be that Mr. T wanted something more than to live in poverty? 4120. Robert Taylor Holmes. Maybe, maybe me, Dr. C. Robert Jones. Maybe I wanted something more. Is that why I walked into that recruiting station on 111th and Halsted on the far south side of Chicago just before I went to my first class of the day at, of the day at Finger Academy? Maybe I wanted something more. Maybe I wanted to escape. I, don't, I can't say. I don't know what my thought process was at that time. I don't recall, but maybe if we had more children, because here's the thing. In my household, we watched Dynasty. We watched we watched Dallas. We watched Knott's Landing. We watched all of these shows. And you know what my mom used to say? She used to use these shows to motivate us. Yeah, even with all the skullduggery going on and, and and all that other stuff, she used to say, if you want that, you can have that, but you got to work hard for it. You see, she would tell us that the characters in these shows got rich, not so much by duplicity, but because they went to school. They learned. They worked hard. She, she didn't tell us that. She didn't say things like, you'll never get that. You'll never have anything like that. You'll never live in a big fine house. You'll never have those kinds of cars because you're black. And those racist white folks won't let you have this or that. They won't let you. I've heard, I've heard parents tell their children sitting right next to me these, those very words. Hell, four years before Barack Obama became president, just four years, a man sat next to me and said, there'll never be a black president. Those white folks won't let us have the White House. Those black folks won't – those white folks won't let us do that. They'll kill us. They'll kill the first guy. They'll kill him before he even gets to the White House. You know, This is all stuff that's built up over time. Black folks believing that there is no hope for them because – that's the way they were taught from the time they were children, that they have no hope. And are they being taught this by white people, racist white people? No. I can tell you for a fact because we're not talking about opinions today. We're talking about cold, hard facts, and here are the facts. Black folks tell other black folks, especially when I was coming up as a child, that don't even try. No matter how hard you work, those racist, those racist white devils will never allow you and fill in the blanks. Alderman. Congressman, rather, Bobby Rush, from my district in my hometown of Chicago, he is now a congressman. Back in the early 70s, he was your average thug. He was a Black Panther. And I'm talking about one of a real Black Panther, not these new Black Panthers. He was a real Black Panther. Got in shootouts with the cops, you know, the usual stuff. How he became a damn congressman at this time, I can't tell you. But you know what Bobby Rush told me? As a 10-year-old, 
a 10-year-old because what I used to do is I'd take advantage of, of Bobby Rush's uh, and the Black Panthers school breakfast program. I think I might have mentioned this on a couple on another show. Well, the Black Panthers in my neighborhood on the on the south side, the near south side, uh, between 35th Street and 51st Street, between State Street and Wabash, Martin Luther King Drive was another border. Well, the Black Panthers had a school breakfast program. They prepare eggs. Bacon, sausage, grits, all of it. And a lot of it was better than what my mom was preparing at home. So I'd go on over and get mine. But you know what Mr. Rush told me? And I'll never forget it. Boy, he said, and I quote, I quote, boy, you're never going to be nothing. No white man won't let you be nothing. They're not going to let you. Don't. And he, he told me this. Now, go ahead at your leisure and look up. Congressman Bobby Rush, a man who defeated, by the way, Barack Hussein Obama. Obama challenged Bobby Rush for his seat in his first his first race, his first political race. He ch- was fool enough to challenge Bobby Rush for his seat and lost. Look up Alderman Bobby Rush. That's the guy who told me as a 10-year-old. That I'll never amount to anything because the white man won't let me. And this is what we have to deal with. So when we talk about institutional racism, we're talking about black folks being racist against black folks. So let's get on with the black on black crime. Crime began rising precipitously in the 1960s. After the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren started tilting the scales in favor of the criminals, some 63% of respondents to a Gallup poll taken in 1968 judged the Warren Court in place from 1953 to 1969 too lenient on crime. But Warren's jurisprudence was supported wholeheartedly by the liberal intelligentsia of that era as well as by politicians who wanted to shift the blame for criminal behavior away from the criminals themselves. Perhaps popular books of the time like uh, Carl uh, Menninger's The Crime of Punishment argued that law and order was an inflammatory term with racial overtones. What it really means, said Messenger, I'm sorry, Menninger, is that we should all go out and find the blank N-word and beat them up. The late William Stutz, S-T-U-N-T-S. One of my law professors, I mean one of my one of my uh, professors in, in school, and then later a Harvard law professor addressed this theory in his 2011 book, The Collapse of American Criminal Justice. He went on to state that the the lenient truth of the mid-20th century was, in part, the product of judges, prosecutors, and politicians who saw criminal punishment as too harsh a remedy for ghetto violence. The Supreme Court's expansion of criminal defendants' legal rights in the 1960s and after flowed from the justices' perception that poor and black defendants were being victimized by the system run by white government officials. Even the rise of harsh drug laws was in a large measure the product of reformers' efforts to limit the awful cost of illegal drug markets Yeah. Each of these changes flowed in large measure from the decision of men who saw themselves as reformers. But those reformers showed an uncanny ability to take bad situations and, of course, make them worse, as most liberals will do. Crime rates rose by 139% during the 1960s alone, and the murder rate even doubled. Cities could hire cops, they couldn't hire cops fast enough. 
The number of police per 1,000 people was up twice the rate of the population growth, and yet clearance rates for crimes dropped 31% and conviction rates down 6%. The Warren Court and American politics did a disservice to communities all across America in the name of reforming and political correctness. This, my friends, we saw as the beginning political correctness. As reminds the case today, blacks in the past were overrepresented among those arrested and imprisoned. In urban areas in 1967, blacks were 17 times more likely than whites to be arrested for robbery. In 1980, blacks comprised about one-eighth of the population, but were half of all those arrested for murder, rape, and robbery, according to FBI data. And they were between one-fourth and one-third of all those arrested for crimes such as burglary, auto theft, and aggravated assault. Why? Does it have anything to do with the school system? Does it have anything to do with poverty? Because I attended the same Chicago public schools as many of the drug dealers who now find themselves in prison for life, murderers, rapists. We all attended the same schools. And I'm just speaking of Chicago. We were all poor. We all look forward to that time when we got that government cheese. You know, those big old giant blocks of cheese. You can make cheese, grilled cheese out of them, that three or four gallons of milk. We all look forward to that. But why didn't it why didn't it cause me to say, hey, you know what? I'm tired of eating government cheese. I'm going to go out and hit somebody over the head and take their stuff so I can eat better. Or I'm going to go out and, well, the only thing that the white man has left me is to sell drugs and kill my own people. I'll repress them even further. So I'm going to go out and do that and make and make some money. Why didn't I do that? Why didn't a lot of black folks do that? The truth, folks, is hard. It's very hard, and it's hard to take. But the truth, coming from a black man who came from the poor side of town, is that I listened every day to other black people tell us and even themselves that there was no hope. And that we had to take whatever we could get. And even if it meant stepping over each other to get ahead, then that's what we got to do. Because we're behind the eight ball. We're so far behind, they, 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 they would state, that we're never going to catch up. So it's every man for himself. There's no unity. And when you've got men like Jesse Jackson, whom we all knew would preach on Sunday and sin on Monday, back home in my home state of Chicago, we all knew that Jesse was fooling around. Jesse's got about 15, 20 kids on the south side alone. Mistresses all over town still. He's almost 100 years old. We knew that back in the 70s. So he was not a role model. He was telling us, up with hope, down with dope. That was a phrase he used back in the 70s. But it was well known that Jesse was stepping out on his wife and he was extorting the local he was extorting the local gentry. He was extorting 
Walgreens, Rexall Drugs. He was he was extorting white-owned businesses. If you don't put money in my coffers, this is back in the 70s, I'm going to go ahead and have folks picketing your store. And we knew there's something wrong with that. How many how many black folks are going to get hired at that store? And how well would they be treated knowing that Jesse has basically extorted money out of this business and got like two two blacks hired there? We knew that was wrong. So we didn't even have proper role models. When you've got your mama and your daddy and everybody else around you telling you that it's institutional racism that's going to keep you down and there's no hope, don't even try. And then you've got your, quote, leader, Jesse Jackson, and even a man that came close to looking up to, uh, uh, I keep calling him Alderman, Congressman Bobby Rush. Former Black Panther. All of these folks were telling us, you're never going to be anything. I didn't have a white person telling me, N-word, you ain't going to never be nothing. You ain't never going to get ahead. You ain't never going to do... No, those were all black people. They were all black. Every single man or woman who has told me that I will never succeed, primarily because white people were always going to keep me down. Well, those were all black people who were telling me that. Those were all black people who were telling me that I'd never amount to anything. Do black lives really matter? Yes, of course they do. All life matters. But should we be asking, do black lives really matter? Should we should we be asking ourselves that question? Should we be asking ourselves, do black lives really matter? Or maybe we shouldn't even ask the question at all. Lives matter. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Dr. C. Robert Jones Situation Report. Islamic State and Major Assault on Syrian Border Town. 11 service members missing in crash and presumed dead. And Hillary Clinton made an email mistake but denies breaking rules. These are the true news headlines. I'm D.W. Balch. The Islamic State is trying to capture a strategic town on the Syrian-Turkish border, leaving dozens dead in clashes. Reports say the Islamic State is slamming Rash Alan and are able to take over a village nearby. Seven Marines and four soldiers aboard an Army helicopter that crashed over waters off Pensacola, Florida, during a routine night training mission from Elgin Air Force Base, are presumed dead. Crews have found human remains despite heavy fog hampering such efforts. A Pentagon official said to AP, off the record, that all 11 service members were presumed dead and that the Coast Guard found debris in the water. Hillary Clinton has conceded making a mistake in failing to use U.S. government email accounts when she was Secretary of State because she said she had opted for convenience. She insisted that she broke no rules and had handed over to the State Department all, quote, work-related, end quote, email contained on the private servers in her New York home, but sidestepped questions about whether she had deleted any work-related email. But she told reporters that she had no classified material on her servers and went above and beyond the legal requirements to preserve copies of government correspondence. Legislation to allow the use of firing squads in death penalty cases is heading to the desk of Utah Governor Gary Herbert. The bill was put forward as questions continued to be raised about using drugs to carry out executions in capital punishment cases. Priscilla Huff has more. The means are very, very different, one Utah State Senator noted. But the ends are the same if you point a gun at someone or you give them a lethal cocktail of drugs. Before 2004, Utah had been the only state which allowed for the use of a firing squad. That was when that option was removed. And now, Governor Gary Herbert has not indicated whether he will sign the new bill passed by the state legislature. But a spokesman notes, 
A firing squad would allow the lawful order of the court and the carefully deliberated decision of the jury to be carried out. The Islamic State has posted a video online claiming to show a boy murdering an Israeli Arab prisoner. In the video, the boy is accompanied by a French-speaking terrorist who also threatens attacks on Jews in France. Tom Sobrick has more. The video shows a boy around the age of 12 shooting a man dead. A man, IS say, was an Israeli spy who had infiltrated the group. Israel has denied that Mohammed said Ismail Musalem, 19, was a Mossad agent. For more news, views, and comments, go to truenews.com. That's T-R-U-N-E-W-S dot com. I'm D.W. Balch. Not fully 
never knowing, because I've talked to a lot, a lot of them, that there was a vehicle that Hitler designed, and it didn't have you in mind. But I digress. Back to black folks and do Black Lives Matter. Well, Margaret didn't think so. Listen to this. Year. So it should come as no surprise when it funnels your money to celebrate its founder. The Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery recently opened a new federally funded exhibit that, according to the museum's curator, celebrates women who have challenged and changed America over the past century. Included in the list is notorious liberal feminist Margaret Sanger. The National Portrait Gallery website provides a brief description of Sanger, describing a concerned crusader who fought with the courage of a wounded tiger for the promotion of birth control. What the Smithsonian exhibit fails to mention, however, is that Margaret Sanger founded the largest abortion chain in the country, now known as Planned Parenthood. But the exhibit also fails to explain the racist ideology behind Sanger's promotion of birth control. Many people don't really know what eugenics is. Eugenics is defined as belief in the possibility of improving the qualities of the human species by discouraging reproduction by persons having genetic defects or presumed to have inheritable, undesirable traits. Essentially, eugenics is the creation of a master race by controlling who has children and who doesn't. An article appearing in the January 31, 1922 edition of the New York Times bore the headline, Mrs. Sanger says Superman is the aim of birth control. If creating a race of supermen is the goal, who did Sanger believe had genetic defects or undesirable traits that stood in the way? In his book, Birth Control, Facts and Responsibilities, Adolf Meyer quoted an essay Sanger wrote in 1925, entitled, The Need of Birth Control in America. Birth control is not merely an individual problem. It is not merely a national question. It concerns the whole wide world, the ultimate destiny of the human race. In his last book, Mr. H.G. Wells speaks of the meaningless, aimless lives which cram this world of ours. Hordes of people who are born, who live, yet who have done absolutely nothing to advance the race one iota. Their lives are hopeless repetitions. All that they have said has been said before. All that they have done has been done better before. Such human weeds clog up the path, drain up the energy and the resources of this little earth. We must clear the way for a better world. We must cultivate our garden. In 1922, Sanger wrote a book entitled The Pivot of Civilization. In it is a chapter called The Cruelty of Charity, where she blasts programs that provide medical and nursing facilities to slum mothers as insidiously injurious. In the same books... All right, let's take a break from that. Time, time's running out. So this is a woman... The, the, what, what you just heard are her actual words. Margaret Sanger wanted to abort those she believed. She wanted those those she believed to be inferior to be aborted. And who has been judged more inferior than blacks, according to some? Who have been judged more inferior by anyone? Margaret Sanger was spoke many times. And gave many lectures uh, to an audience of the Ku Klux Klan. She was revered by that organization. Held up as a model. Margaret Sanger is praised today by black people especially. How ironic is that? Since her goal, her aim, no, not just black people to be, well, have their birth rate curtailed, to put it mildly, but for any race of people who she deemed or who were deemed to be inferior, who have not contributed one iota, as her words, her words were, 
How many black folks do we have on the South Side alone who fit that description? Quite a few. Hell, I even have some of those in my own family. That's for damn sure. Should they have been aborted? Well, all I'm saying is Margaret Sanger has been held up as a role model, a champion, a heroine, a role model, a leader. Black folks swear by Planned Parenthood, not fully realizing that it was designed to get rid of them because all blacks, according to Margaret Sanger, and I, and I wish I could play the whole clip. Maybe I'll get into it some more tomorrow because later on in the clip, Margaret Sanger goes on to say that all blacks, all Negroes, were deemed to be unworthy to walk the face of the earth, especially here in the United States. We'll get into that later because we don't we don't have time. We've got two minutes left. So it's kind of like I don't want to I don't want to compare the two, but think of think of um, Treblinka or Dachau or Auschwitz, where a Jew walks in to take his shower, thinking he's going to take a shower, and he doesn't come out. Think of a young black woman. Pregnant, walks into one of Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood offices, thinking perhaps she's just going to get some counseling. The next thing you know, a couple of days later, she comes back and she's sans baby. No, no baby anymore. The baby has been exterminated. Compliments of Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood and the philosophy that lies within. Do black lives matter? Yes, they do. Does all life matter? Yes, it does. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get further into Margaret Sanger's belief that all blacks need to go. Or, at the very least, we need to stop those Negroes from making babies. We'll get into that more tomorrow, I guess. Yeah, sure we will. In the meantime, thank y'all for listening. We're going to head on over to, I think my man G-Ski has a show on tonight. So let's go check him out. If we don't find G-Ski, let's head on over to Ken's show, the exceptional conservative. What a great guy. Anyway, 60 seconds. We're out of here. <laughs> Good night, folks. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. We're out. Tomorrow all the things were gone I'd work for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky star To be living here today But the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away
There ain't no doubt I love 